Hello, I'm Clement Paligaru, and welcome to Ear to Asia, where we talk with researchers who focus on the region with its diverse peoples, societies, and histories. Ear to Asia is a podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialists at the University of Melbourne. In this episode, is it back to the drawing board for Indonesia's education system? Indonesia is the most populous country in Southeast Asia and the world's fourth most populous, with close to 260 million people. The country is also disproportionately young, with about a third of Indonesians of school age. But despite having more than 3 million teachers, manageable class sizes and spending on education that amounts to a whopping 20% of national and local budgets, Indonesia continues to seriously lag behind in educational outcomes on a range of international measures. The country officially committed itself in 2002 to massively reforming its education system to improve the lot of its people and economy, and it isn't shy about writing big checks to make it happen. Yet, as we'll hear, things are hardly going according to plan. So what's preventing Indonesia from bringing its children up to par in the education stakes? And how do the larger forces of Indonesian politics and society themselves need to change in order to do that? To answer these questions, we're joined by political economist Andrew Rosser, who's Professor of Southeast Asian Studies at Asia Institute, the University of Melbourne. Besides his academic work, Andrew also consults for international development organisations such as the World Bank. Andrew, welcome to Ear to Asia. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I'd like to begin with how Indonesia is lagging behind in education. Firstly, let's take a look at how Indonesian students are performing on some international measures of education performance, like PISA scores. And PISA stands for Programme for International Student Assessment. Well, Indonesia has, to its credit, signed up to this form of assessment. Not all developing countries do. In the last round, which occurred in 2015, about 70 countries participated in the assessment most of them from the OECD, but a number of developing countries as well. Indonesia came in 62nd place out of that group of 70 countries, according to the tables of the OECD. And generally speaking, Indonesia comes in in a similar place in the rankings for a number of years now. And the fact Indonesia is not performing as well as OECD countries is perhaps not surprising, but it's not performing anywhere near as well as other countries within its own region. Vietnam, for instance, came in in eighth place in these rankings. Thailand, 54th place, if I'm not mistaken. Singapore topped the tables. Are you able to tell us a little more about the actual measures here? What does PISA look at? Well, PISA typically looks at performance in three areas, science, mathematics and reading. And the OECD reports provide an average score for the OECD. Let's take science, which was the focus of the last PISA, for instance, the OECD average was 493. That was the score that students gained on the test. Indonesia was down at 403, so well behind. And the scores in mathematics and in reading are similar. And yet in Indonesia, the education sector is not in want of resources. Give us an idea of the scale of the educational sector in Indonesia. What percentage of the 3 million plus teachers are government employees, for example? The short answer to that is that we don't know. 
And we don't know in large part because Indonesian teachers fall into two broad categories. There's the civil servant teachers and then there are what are called guru honor or honorary teachers. And we have no real accurate assessments of the number of honorary teachers that there are in the system. Donor organisations and USAID in particular has managed to produce some figures of teacher-student ratios. Those figures suggest that the teacher-student ratio in Indonesia is about 1 to 16, which is an extremely generous supply of teachers. And just to clarify, with the honorary teachers, what's their status or what are their qualifications compared to the civil service teachers you mentioned? Typically, their qualifications won't be a whole lot different to civil servant teachers. The principal difference lies in their terms of employment. So civil servant teachers are permanent, very, very hard to sack. Honorary teachers are employed on a casual basis, essentially, and will tend to be appointed by the school. Civil servant teachers are employees of the state. Now, this is related to history, so I will come back to the present in a moment, but let's look at education in an historical context. Much of Indonesia's history since gaining independence in 1949 was under the Suharto regime known as New Order. It spanned 32 years, from 1966 to 1998. What was achieved in education during that period? Well, the main achievement of the New Order was to build a public education system. Indonesia's enrolment rates early in the New Order period were really quite low. Relatively few students had access to even primary school education, let alone secondary school education. The New Order built a schooling system that spanned the archipelago and it recruited an awful lot of teachers to staff those schools. And it managed to get enrolment rates at primary school level up to universal primary school enrolment by the early 1980s. So it was an investment that paid off in terms of improved access to primary school education in particular, to a lesser extent secondary school education. What the new order didn't manage to achieve, and this reflected a whole lot of factors, not least the fact that the new order was an authoritarian regime, was improvements in terms of learning outcomes education quality remained very poor in Indonesia. It just became more widely available. After the new order ended in 1998, Indonesia became more democratic and the government of the day introduced numerous reforms which ushered in the post-new order or reformasi period. What were some of the key education reforms? Well, education has been a sector where the government has introduced a lot of change. Probably the biggest change has been to increase the size of the education budget. In the late New Order period, the Indonesian government was spending something like 2% of national income on education. That's now up around 4%. There is now a constitutional requirement for the Indonesian government to spend at least 20% of the national budget on education. It's taken some time, but the education budget is now, according to the Indonesian government, up around that 20% mark. What motivated this spike? Look, I think it was a number of things. Education has a kind of central place in the Indonesian conceptions of what the nation should be. And I think in large part, it was that coming to bear at a key moment in the country's history where there was an opportunity to introduce some changes. If you look at the Indonesian constitution, for instance, there are sentences in there that talk about the need to build up the country's human resources, to educate the nation, to make it a smarter and 
more educated population. The other thing that went on was that in the early post-New Order period, when the NPR was meeting to revise the constitution, there were some people around the table representing the education sector who managed to get a conversation going about the country's poor performance in spending on education under the New Order and the problems that that had caused. What about the role of donor organisations, international donor organisations like the World Bank and USAID in this environment? Donors, I think, have presented a contradictory message in relation to the size of the Indonesian education budget. They've agreed, I think, along with just about everybody else, that Indonesia's education budget was too small during New Order times and that spending needed to increase. At the same time, though, because these organisations are dominated by a conservative economic perspective, they've been wary of the budgetary implications, the fiscal implications of rapidly increasing spending. They've also been concerned about the potential for rapid increases in spending to be used in a way that simply isn't effective in terms of achieving educational objectives. So they've been key players in the process, but they've tried to influence the government in a series of directions that are somewhat contradictory. Let's go back to budget. Has the increase in budget delivered on education targets and outcomes? By and large, the evidence so far suggests that it hasn't. The PISA scores for Indonesia have improved, but not dramatically. The country's ranking has not dramatically changed since Indonesia first started participating in the PISA process back in 2000. At the same time, studies done of the impact of the teacher certification program, which is a a program that was linked to the budget. A lot of the increased spending in education has gone into pay rises for teachers, and the expected quid pro quo for the nation from the pay rise for teachers has been an improvement in their pedagogical skills, their subject knowledge, and more generally their capacity to teach effectively. Now, studies done of the impact of that program have by and large suggested that it's done very little to improve teacher capabilities or to improve learning outcomes. You mentioned certification. My understanding is that the certification system is also one that is manipulated. Can you tell me about this and how it's affected everything? The issue was more that the teacher certification was designed in a very technocratic way at the outset to be quite a rigorous system of training teachers, improving their skills and assessing them on their competencies. But it got watered down over time such that By the end, it was possible for teachers to photocopy a few documents, put them into a portfolio, submit them to the relevant authorities, have it ticked off and get a big pay rise. And the pay rise was in the order of two times their previous salary. What's being done to sort this out? Because you say it's been watered down, but what's being done now? I don't know that a whole lot is really being done in relation to the teacher certification program at present. The sort of studies that are indicating that it hasn't had much of an effect are only just starting to be published. We wait to see what the Indonesian government's response to them is. What I would say is that I think there are some other things going on in relation to Indonesia's education sector that may yield some improvement in teacher capacities. One is that the teacher workforce is undergoing generational change. You're getting a new generation of teachers coming through, many of them attracted by the higher salaries that teaching now offers. You know, teachers are said to be better paid than many doctors in Indonesia. 
The other thing is that the Indonesian government in recent years has changed the way in which it recruits civil servants. They've established a much more meritocratic system that involves a computerised online test. This has made the process much more transparent. Decision-making authority over who gets teachers' jobs is made in Jakarta, not in the local area, which disrupts the sort of local patronage networks that have affected teacher appointments in the past. There have been a number of media reports, for instance, saying that the son or daughter of a district head who might in the past have expected to be given a public service position simply because of their family lineage, now these people are missing out on getting public service jobs. And that's a fascinating aspect of this, the patronage aspect and those networks, and I'll come to that in just a moment. You're listening to Ear to Asia, brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, and I'm Clement Paligaru. Our guest on this episode of Ear to Asia is political economist Professor Andrew Rosser, who's telling us about what's stopping Indonesia from getting its education reforms on track despite spending big. Now, Andrew, let's talk about patronage. It seems to be endemic in Indonesia. Can you explain this patronage and how it's actually impacting the education system? I think patronage impacts on the education system in a number of different ways. One is that you commonly find that family members of education agency officials will be appointed to teachers' positions, school principal positions or other positions that are crucial to the operation of schools. With honorary teachers, for instance, it's quite common for school principals who have hiring and firing within their portfolio of responsibilities in relation to honorary teachers to hire family members or friends as honorary teachers. All of this serves to reduce the likelihood that the best quality candidate will actually get work as a teacher in the Indonesian education system. When it comes to the principals themselves, it's not just about appointment of family members. There's monies involved as well. Can you tell me about that, if that is indeed the case? Look, the basic principle that a public office is available for sale to the highest bidder still operates to a large extent in Indonesia, notwithstanding the various efforts that have been made to combat corruption within the country. So if one thinks about school principals, for instance, now school principals have control over the school budget. They're meant to manage it in conjunction with school committees, but school committees tend to be fairly weak, and in particular in poorer and more isolated areas. It's a bit different in middle-class areas, but for the most part, school committees tend to be fairly weak and dominated very much by the school principal. So the school principal's in quite an opportune position to make use of the budgetary resources under his or her control uh, to line their own pockets if they want to. There's also typically an expectation that some of those resources will flow upward into the local education agency because at the end of the day, school principal's even after having been appointed, are still beholden to their bureaucratic masters because their bureaucratic masters can transfer them, for instance. They can demote them. Someone appointed to a relatively wealthy school where there are relatively good rent-seeking opportunities would fear, for instance, being transferred to a more remote school where there are just fewer resources available for corruption. It's about monies, I suppose, but it's about votes as well. Ultimately, it can also influence your patrons and, and how you serve their interests as well, can't it? That's right. I mean, you often 
here it said that a teacher's vote is in fact worth three or four additional votes because that teacher will have a spouse, might have children, they might be able to influence people in their local community, particularly in rural areas and in poorer areas. Teachers are still figures of some standing. It's not so much the case in more middle-class areas, but certainly in those other areas, teachers are a figure of some standing and their, their views in the local community carry some weight. So if you can get a teacher on board politically, that might translate into quite a few votes. So teachers do play this really important political role. The other thing is that teachers quite commonly are involved in counting votes at election time. What about teacher redistribution? Why is improving redistribution so important? Because it is something that the new policies also aim to do. It's one of the things that's set in the agenda, isn't it, of reform? That's right. In 2011, the central government issued what's called the Five Ministerial Decree, which essentially instructed district-level governments to improve the distribution of teachers within their districts. Because typically what you have in Indonesian districts is a situation where teachers, and especially civil servant teachers, who are generally considered to be better quality teachers than the honorary teachers, are concentrated in urban areas. And in rural areas and remote areas, you tend to have a dearth of civil servant teachers. Now, this is a problem in as much as a poor distribution of teachers leads to real inequality in the quality of education that's available to students. Those in urban areas get a better quality education than those in more remote or rural areas. And that in turn translates into differential outcomes in terms of learning. This is something that's very much on the Indonesian government's agenda for that particular reason, also for fiscal reasons. I mean, there are a couple of ways in which the Indonesian government could improve the distribution of teachers. One would be to just employ more teachers and to put them in the remote or rural areas so that schools in those areas have the full complement of teachers that they're meant to have. But that, of course, would have significant budgetary implications, particularly in a context of a teacher certification program that's jemmying up teacher salaries. And this is where that concept of uh, a secular favourite comes in as well, doesn't it? Can you tell us a bit about this? Secular favourite uh, literally translates as favourite schools. It denotes the fact that within the public school system, there are some schools that are seen as being better than others. Typically, the favourite schools exist in urban areas and in relatively middle-class suburbs. At one point, a good number of these schools were designated by the government as international standard schools and were given a whole lot of privileges, additional funding, the ability to charge fees and so on. That policy has now been brought to an end. But nevertheless, the existence of favourite schools continues. And these schools Because they're in wealthier areas, they tend to have more generous budgets, they're better connected in social and political terms, they tend to be favoured places for teachers to teach. I haven't seen any hard figures on this, but my casual observation would suggest that these schools tend to have a relatively full complement of civil servant teachers, relatively few honorary teachers, whereas in a more remote area, those schools are more likely to rely on honorary teachers than civil servant teachers. Andrew, you've covered a lot of the obstacles to these reforms, but I'd like to move on to what could possibly work. You've carried out empirical research in two districts and two municipalities on the island of Java, where the bulk of Indonesians live, and you've had a glimpse into what could work, that is conditions conducive to reform. 
what are some of the conditions or success factors which allow for improvements in, in teacher management from your observations and the case studies that you've done? Look, improving the quality of education and in particular improving learning outcomes in Indonesia is incredibly complex. When donors and education specialists look at this problem, they tend to construe it in terms of funding levels, in terms of levels of training for teachers, in terms of the nature of management systems and processes, in terms of the sorts of incentives that teachers face to perform or not to perform. And interventions in all of those areas is needed to improve Indonesia's education system. My own research has applied a political economy lens to this particular problem. It seems to me that one key political variable is the extent to which the central government makes a credible commitment to driving reform from above. If you take the teacher certification program, for instance, that was unravelled at the central level because the Indonesian Teachers Union, the PGRI, successfully lobbied the parliament to back away from the reforms and to water them down. In other areas, though, the central government has remained fairly hard and fast in relation to policies that it has insisted the districts implement or has forced the districts to implement. I mean, one, for instance, is a moratorium on the number of civil servant appointments, which, of course, affects the teaching workforce in as much as many civil servants at the district level are teachers. For a number of years now, in districts where the local budget is being spent by and large on salaries, more than 50%. More recently, that's been reduced to 40% on on salaries. Those districts have been prevented from making new civil service appointments. And the evidence so far suggests that the central government has remained fairly determined to implement that policy. It hasn't backed away from it. You know, I think one crucial thing is that the central government really commits to the reforms that it wants to implement There's a fair bit you've had to cover looking at all these layers in education. What have been some of the main challenges you've faced in your research into education in Indonesia? Probably the key challenge has been getting access to people within the state apparatus itself to talk about these sorts of issues. When I do field work, I very often start my research with NGO activists and members of the donor community, because they tend to be relatively open and accessible. But getting inside the state is a much more difficult sort of process. I did some work recently for DFAT and the World Bank on teacher management reform. And I think because this was an officially sponsored activity, it opened up some doors that might, if I was doing an independent research project, would normally have been closed. I have managed, fortunately, to get in and talk to people in local education agencies, to some extent in the national ministry as well. But I think I was just afforded an unusual opportunity in that respect. And you have applied the lens of political economics to analysing the Indonesian education sector. How important is it that this perspective is taken? It is very important because it construes the problems of access to education, the quality of education, learning outcomes in very, very different terms. As I said before, economists and education specialists tend to focus on issues of funding, incentive structures, training levels and so on, all of which is really important. But 
the thing is you need a political commitment at the end of the day to do something. So if we're to understand really what the obstacles are to improving access, improving quality, etc., you really need to address matters of politics. Now, unfortunately, the academic literature on education in developing countries has not so far really analysed the political economy dimensions of education reform to a large extent. There is something of a literature beginning to emerge, but it's still quite small. And I think, to their credit, donor organisations are increasingly onto this. And so I would hope that some more work will be done in the future, perhaps funded by them, perhaps funded by traditional research councils and so on. Andrew, we'll need to leave it there. But many thanks for your insights and thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. We've been speaking with Andrew Rosser, who's Professor of Southeast Asian Studies at University of Melbourne and based at Asia Institute. Professor Rosser is a political economist whose current research examines the relationship between Indonesia's politics and its education system. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud. If you've enjoyed this or other episodes of the podcast series, it'd be great if you'd give us a generous rating and write a review in iTunes or like us on SoundCloud. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2017, the University of Melbourne. I'm Clement Faligaru. Thanks for your company and bye for now.